Hi everybody, we're in our series on the book of Esther. And let me just say at the outset that as a woman, there is much about this story that simply makes me want to scream and shout. I'm infuriated by it. But on the other hand, there are things that make me want to say yes and scream and shout with joy. So let's remind ourselves of the plot. When Queen Vashti refused to make an appearance to show off her beauty at the King's feast, he became enraged and banished her from his presence. He then issued a royal edict to find a new queen, bringing many lovely virgins to his harem at the palace. One of those virgins was Esther, an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai the Jew was raising her as if she were his own daughter. We are told she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So after the royal edict, Esther was brought into the king's palace and put in the harem. She won the favour of the man in charge, Haggai, and he provided her with makeup, food and maidservants. Esther didn't tell anyone that she was a Jew, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Well, after 12 months of beauty treatment, each virgin would go into the king. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. She wouldn't go into the king again unless he delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. The king, though, loved Esther more than all the women. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti and gave a feast in her honour. Meanwhile, Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate the king and reported it to Queen Esther and so saved the king's life. And the event was recorded in the historical records, but no reward was given to Mordecai. But meanwhile, the king promoted a man called Haman, whose descendants were enemies of the Jewish people, he was given the highest position of authority, second only to the king, and everyone was commanded to bow down to him. But Mordecai refused to pay him homage and that enraged Haman, so he made plans to eradicate Mordecai and all his people, every Jew in the kingdom, an edict was issued for their destruction. Well, when Mordecai heard of the edict, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he wailed around the city, and Jews everywhere did the same. Mordecai sent a copy of the edict to Esther so she could go to the king to plead on behalf of her people. But when she read the edict, she sent word to Mordecai, I haven't been called to go to the king for 30 days and let me remind you that anybody who goes to the inner court without an invitation, the law is that they be put to death unless the king holds out his royal scepter that they may live. Well, Mordecai's reply was bold. Don't think that you will escape more than all the other Jews because you live in the royal palace. If you keep silent, deliverance will come from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to royal position for such a time as this. So Esther asked Mordecai to call a fast among the Jews and she would fast too with her maidservants, no food or drink for three days. She then told Mordecai, then I will go to the king even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, at the end of the three days, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight, and he held out the scepter to her. Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even up to half of my kingdom. So Esther invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to her, what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
and Esther invited them to another banquet. Well, Haman was thrilled, but his joy was soon replaced with rage when he saw Mordecai at the palace gate still refusing to bow down to him. So his wife and his friends persuaded him to build a gallows for Mordecai's execution and to ask the king's permission in the morning to put Mordecai to death. Well, that very night, the king couldn't sleep, so he asked for his historical records to be read to him. And the section that happened to be read was about Mordecai's discovery of the assassination plot. And when the king realised that nothing had been done to reward Mordecai, he wanted to do something for him. So when Haman arrived at the court in the morning, he asked him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honour? Well, thinking that the king wanted to honour him, of course, Haman suggested royal robes and being led around the city on a horse that the king had ridden. Imagine his shock and horror when he discovers this Mordecai that the king wants to honour and he's humiliated as he is forced to publicly honour the man that he wants dead for not honouring him. Well, during the banquet the next day, the king again asks Esther, what is your wish? And Esther told the king about Hesper about Haman's despicable plot, revealing that she herself was a Jew, something that she had kept hidden up until this point. And the king was so enraged when he realised what Haman had done that he executed him on the very gallows built for Mordecai. On that day, Haman's lands were given to Esther and the king's signet ring was given to Mordecai, whom Esther then set over the lands of Haman. Esther spoke to the king a second time and pleaded with him to avert Haman's plan for her people. And once again, he extended his scepter to her, saying, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews and seal it with my signet ring, for an edict sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be revoked. So in the end, it is Queen Esther who is issuing royal edicts. Mordecai is promoted to Haman's position of authority and the Jewish people are saved. Plots and intrigue, feasting and fasting, villains and heroes, this is quite a story. And when we first encounter Esther, two things stand out to me, her beauty and her compliance. She's introduced as Mordecai's very beautiful and lovely cousin. And then in chapter two, we see that she does what she's told by Mordecai, not revealing her nationality during the year of beauty treatment. And at the palace, when it was her turn to go to the king, she followed Haggai's suggestions to the letter, taking only what he suggested. And even after she had been made queen, verse 20 tells us she was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when he, she lived in his home. The Understanding the Bible series comments on how Esther's compliance and passivity is very subtly portrayed in chapter 2 through a string of Hebrew passives used in the language. And it goes on to state, what happens in her life happens to her. She is a pawn in a game played by powerful men. And there is the thing that infuriates me. At the beginning of the story, the queen has been taken and Esther is queen in name only, a pawn rather than a queen, being moved around the chessboard at the behest of others, doing the bidding of palace officials to satisfy the needs and lusts of the king. I mean, it looked like Esther was living the life, but she was trapped in a beautiful prison. She wasn't free to come and go. Her every move was dictated by the king. And now, because of Haman's edict, Mordecai was asking her to make a risky move and go before the king. I mean, come on, she might be a pawn, but she was a palace pawn, and that came with a lot of perks. 
and I can imagine that living in the palace bubble, Esther may have become insulated from the realities of life outside the palace walls. When she first read the edict, she was focused on self-preservation. What would happen to her? She might die. I mean, she was just a woman in a man's world. And we can feel trapped by our circumstances, overcome with fear and overwhelmed by the sense that our lives are outside of our control. I have felt like that. We wonder what we can do to change things. We're just pawns in a broken world, powerless with only limited moves available to us. The fear of the what-ifs can paralyze us. Like Esther, we find ourselves at a crossroads, damned if we do something and damned if we don't. It is Mordecai who warns her of the dangers of staying silent and doing nothing and asks her the million dollar question, what if you were made queen for such a time of this? And it's as if reality hits Esther right here. This is a defining moment. She realizes that doing nothing is not an option. So she makes, makes a dementous decision that she will go to the king and she also calls a fast. Reminds me of Joel too. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Let the people say, spare your people, Lord. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Dr. Karen Jobes comments that whether Esther was mindful of Joel's prophecy or not, rather than remaining silent, in effect, Esther blows a trumpet in Susa, calling all the Jews to fast. And in that one decision, she stopped being a pawn in Xerxes' kingdom. She remembered to whom she belonged, the Jewish people. Esther the pawn had become Esther the prayer warrior. A different hand was now directing her moves. By calling the fast, she made her first move in the power struggle that was unfolding. And she decided that if she was going down, she would go down praying. Like Esther, there will be times in our lives when we will face seemingly impossible situations We'll be tempted to stay silent and do nothing. But those situations can become defining moments for us. We are never powerless when we fast and pray. The book of James tells us that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. And while prayer is not mentioned here, it is certainly implied. In her study on Esther, Beth Moore states, a momentous element of the fast in Esther is the profound implication of prayer. In a book of the Bible with no mention of God, fasting indicates prayer, and prayer indicates God. After all, fasting for fasting's sake is futile. Our assumption is that Esther and the Jews of Susa went without food so that they could wholeheartedly focus their petitions before God. Their refusal to receive sustenance demonstrated their desperation to receive something much greater, deliverance. How desperate are we to receive from God? Well, what happened during the fast? We're not told of any prophecies or visions from God. There are no lightning bolts from heaven. But at the end of all of that fasting, Esther made another move. She put on her royal robes and she went before the king. And this wasn't just a pretty dress. The robe spoke of her position. She was reminding the king, hey, not only am I beautiful, but you chose me above all the other women. You set the crown on my head. I am the queen. And it worked. Despite Haman's edict and her Jewish background, despite the fact that she was breaking the law because she hadn't been summoned, when the king looked at her and saw her, he extended the scepter to her. 
He had the power to intervene to save her and her people. But I have a sneaky feeling that Esther was not pinning her hopes on King Xerxes. Rather, she had put her trust in the power behind the throne, our God who sits enthroned in heaven. And maybe, just maybe, when she'd been fasting, God had reminded her of Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Esther was discovering that it is the hand of God that moves the pieces on the chessboard. She made her next move, inviting the king and Haman to a banquet. And that makes me shout, yes! Talk about savvy. She plays to their egos and in one swoop, she removes all the minions around them so that they could have no influence. And now she had their full attention. And meanwhile, she is backed up by all the Jews in Susa. Between the two feasts, we know that the whole situation turned around because the king couldn't sleep. So he decided to read and he happened to read about Mordecai saving his life. So Haman happened to have to lead Mordecai through the streets to honor him while the gallows stood silently by. Scrumptious irony. But what was Esther's part in all of this? Did she feed the king decaffeinated coffee at the end of the feast to keep him awake? Did she have the chronicles of history ready on the right page at his bedside table? No, that was all God, all happening while Esther was likely asleep or getting ready for her next move, the second banquet. In a game of chess, as a pawn advances all the way across the board and arrives at the other side, the pawn can be promoted to queen. Esther had had the title all along, but now she steps right into the position, in the position of power. So this time, when the king asks, what is your request? She reveals the dastardly plot, and the king is so enraged that he hangs Haman on the gallows men for Mordecai. The queen is back on the board, and because of the fasting and the prayer, her move options are about to open right up. She can move any number of squares in any direction. She had become a powerful piece in the game of chess that is being played out and she takes full advantage. No longer is life happening to her, as we read in the commentary, rather she is dictating life's terms. The commentary goes on to say, Esther is transformed through the ordeal that Haman's edict forces on her. Remarkable changes take place in the heart of this once young dependent orphan who finally becomes a confident, assertive and competent leader. In the final chapter, she speaks in imperatives and authorises edicts. Esther is now the one giving orders. Esther the pawn has moved into a position of power. She is queen. Her enemy is defeated, her family is promoted, her people are delivered. Checkmate. Because of our circumstances, we can feel like a small pawn, powerless to act. Damned if we do and damned if we don't. But God is ready to move on our behalf. And like Esther, those situations can be the making of us. We need to remember to whom we belong. We have been adopted into God's family. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And for some of us, our shame and our guilt stop us from living in the good of those truths. We feel unworthy because of our mistakes, past or present. 
but we must remember what God has done. Whatever charges were against us, God has cancelled. Colossians 2 tells us, we were dead because of sins. Then God made us alive with Christ, forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. We are forgiven and he has defeated our enemies. We too have been given royal robes to wear. Isaiah tells us he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. We are never underdressed in front of God when we approach his throne. In Christ, he has clothed us with his righteousness and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. And we don't have to wait for an invitation from God to come into his presence. Hebrews 4 encourages us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is always ready to extend his scepter to you, asking you what is your request. It will be granted you. His kingdom is available to us and he loves to answer our prayers. What is the edict or enemy that stands against you today? An eviction notice? Divorce papers? A court order? Or a scary medical diagnosis? Or is it simply the sense that your circumstances and relationships are not in your control, that you are being controlled and manipulated by people around you for their own ends. Whatever edict has been issued against you and me, we are not pawns. We may not have positions of power in society. We may not wield the same level of influence as the Esthers and Mordecais of this world but we have all been placed in our sphere of influence for such a time as this, in our families, our workplace, our schools and our communities, and our prayers make a difference. Esther remembered to whom she belonged and who God had made her. She threw herself on the mercy of God and she rallied her people to support her in prayer. She fasted and she feasted and she faced her enemy she took full advantage of her position in the kingdom and saw God bring victory and deliverance for her and her people. And it's time for us to do the same. The time for thinking like a small pawn is over. We belong to God. We are clothed in his righteousness and we have full access to his throne of grace. Let's stand together in prayer and fasting to overcome the things that stand against us we will discover that because of our position in Christ, there are many moves open to us. I'm so excited that we're starting the monthly prayer gatherings again. The first praise and prayer will be on July the 30th. In e-news, the graphic says the battle belongs to the Lord. Yes, it's time to fast and pray and step into our positions in God's kingdom, bringing our petitions before his throne. Let's let the challenges that we face become our defining moments. Who knows what God might do? We are never powerless when we fast and pray. Esther is proof of that. Yes! God bless you all.